Welcome to the Propane Business Podcast. I'm Johnny. And I'm Yusuf. We set up and built propanefitness.com into the profitable semi-automated system that it is today, which allowed us to quit our corporate jobs and coach online full-time. More importantly, we were able to do this without a huge online audience or being glued to social media every day. We're now ready to share everything from the failures we've made to the systems that now consistently generate hundreds of thousands in revenue. We help personal trainers, coaches, and gym owners do the same by avoiding the mistakes we've made and the best practices going forward. Subscribe to this podcast to learn what we're doing and what we've done to build and scale propanefitness.com. We'll be teaching you how to generate a steady flow of online clients, win at Facebook ads, automate your coaching systems, and to achieve financial independence. So Ali, I'm Johnny. I'm your business partner. Um, We do this together, I guess. I've been for quite a while. I've actually just been watching a lot of your YouTube stuff this morning. Oh, nice. I'm sorry to hear that. (laughs) No, no, it's, it's... it's it's good. I've been practicing the the pen tricks as well. Oh, sick! <laughs> um, I think Yusuf's quite a bit better than me. Yeah. What are the pen tricks, or just in in general? <laughs> I hope I hope not in general. At every <laughs> certainly at some things, but definitely at the pens. I think it's maybe. Only can we see your 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 pen demo? So it's so I, I start off really well, and then yeah. let's have a look. What do you think? Oh, sick. Oh, I'm incredible. It's <laughs> a two-handed technique. <laughs> I think it's a doctor thing. I think this is the second time that we've done a podcast where I'm the only non-doctor on the call. That's pretty standard amongst like most uh, uh, Asian gatherings. My brother's <laughs> always in that position. He's like, I'm literally the only non-medicare out of like the only non-doctor. People. Yeah. So I'm I'm an accountant, which is is more boring. Oh, but you're but, a PT on the side, or what? Yeah. So started off in accountancy and now do this. Oh, and, yeah. and now this is, this is a full-time gig. Yeah. Nice. Awesome. So you must be pretty ripped as well. Bit of a bit of a weird <laughs> career transition, but yeah. yeah. I mean, it seems like the sort of dream, uh, doesn't it? Because everyone, it's it seems like in a lot of these like traditional careers, people like are itching to leave. Mm-hmm. It seems like you've you've found your exit. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we we kind of had a, a planned exit by accident for quite a while, and then you sort of join the corporate world and realize that it's not quite what it was advertised to be. Yeah. And then this was always sort of something that was in the background and yeah. just pulled the pulled the shoot luckily it's still i'm st- I still haven't had to go back yet but you know yeah well. you never know, <laughs> the, the, the pull cord was attached to something and something, <laughs> something saved me but yeah so for anyone listening um this is dr ali abdul that we have on the call and i think having stumbled on his channel recently <clears throat> we realized that we, we've got a spooky amount in common like we're all absolute apple and evernote fanboys uh me and ali are both kind of mildly arab uh we very interested in like spaced repetition learning online <laughs> financial independence um all the kind of mac productivity stuff and he is currently an f2 which means that he's the guy that i call when i've tried to get someone's blood six times and i'm not able to yeah that's me <laughs> that is exactly what i do <laughs> so, uh, and I write lots of discharge letters as well because you know they're not going to write themselves. But slightly higher standard than the discharge letters that I would write. So um, uh, Ali has a uh, a number of different projects and a huge channel on YouTube. And uh, really, we we wanted to get in touch with him because he is kind of living the multiple streams of passive income uh, life basically. And, uh, while having run a medical education business that is still going, but it's, it's not really, as I understand, it's not something you're still actively, um, working with, but you're still kind of enjoying the fruits of its legacy. Yeah. It's not something that I do day to day much anymore. We've got like a, a whole team that handles that side of things. So I can kind of spend my time focusing on the YouTube stuff and kind of growing the older personal brand. <laughs> What was it that um, attracted you to YouTube in the first place? I think initially I started using YouTube as a content marketing machine for this business. So this business, we were teaching uh, people applying to medical school how to do well in exams that they had to take. And at the time, there really wasn't a lot of high quality content on YouTube about this. There were these big companies that were doing the whole blog post standard content marketing thing, but no one was really doing it on YouTube. And so I thought, hey, hang on, I'm pretty good at teaching. I you know, fancy myself a decent public speaker. Why don't I just get a camera and start you know, giving away free advice on the internet? 
in, in the hope, like following the Tim Ferriss, Gary Vaynerchuk model of, you know, providing loads of free content such that people will eventually know, like, and trust you, and then will be more likely to sign up for your paid offerings. So it started off very much as a sort of the, the top of the funnel thing that would lead people into signing up for our courses. And then very quickly, like a few kind of weeks into it, I realized, oh, hang on, you know, this vlogging thing is, is a thing and no one's really doing that within medicine, at least they weren't at the time. And I thought, hey, if I'm targeting people applying to medical school, why don't I do a vlog about what medical school's like? And then that seemed to go well. And so after starting out very niche in this tiny category of kids applying to medical school in the UK, potentially one of the top ones, which is a very, very niche category, slowly over time, I kind of broadened out the video reach to like students in general and then productivity and tech and a few other bits. So that was sort of the journey there. It's, it's a very hungry audience as well. I think people applying to med school, um, I've done one or two videos on, um, certain exams that we have to do throughout med school. And like, they would just kind of throw away things similar to, to yourself. I didn't even have a product to sell. It was just like, well, I've got a bit of expert knowledge in this one thing, so I'll just do a video on it. And it just gets loads of traffic on its own, even from a, a completely new channel. So it sounds like you started off doing it with a view for top of funnel for six med, presumably. And then yeah. you said it kind of taken a bit of a change of direction because as it gained momentum, as the audience started to widen, it was like, oh, hey, I could actually do something in and of itself with YouTube. Yeah, exactly. Like, running the business was really fun for the first three years while everything was growing. And then for this, for the, for the next three years, it was like our numbers were sort of declining a bit. And then like there's more competitors that were springing up and I sort of lost interest in doing lots of work for it myself. And so that's why now we've got this team of people that handles it. So I don't really have to think about it very much at all. And I can just kind of focus entirely on this, on this thing of, of YouTube, which I think it's one of those things whereby I, I think anything is really fun as it's growing, but as soon as it stops growing as easily at that point, it starts, I, I, I guess it starts to get a bit depressing. And thankfully I haven't gotten to that point with the YouTube channel yet, but <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying, trying to do everything I can to avoid that, that, that happening with that too. So I'm, I'm surprised about that. Cause it, you, how many subscribers have you got at this point? I think 600 and something thousand, 650, okay. 660. Like a hell of a lot of people. Like it's, it's almost like to try and conceptualize that as a, a stadium of people it's just like yeah yeah that's quite it's quite a lot (laughs) does it ever feel kind of dizzying that especially with you know you said that not many medics tend to have a youtube presence and partly probably because fear of um professional um recognition or professional um getting into trouble i suppose and having to tread carefully with certain things Mm. does that ever concern you uh, no, not really. I think um, most people who I, w- I would suggest that it's probably fear in general, and it's just convenient that the general medical council is an easy, an easy scapegoat for that to, to hang that fear off of. Um, like if you ask anyone, you know, would you feel com- comfortable putting yourself on the internet? They'd probably be like, oh, not really. But if you ask a medic, they'd be like, oh, not really, because I'm yeah. worried about the general medical council as opposed <laughs> yeah. to because I'm a wimp. Uh, so <laughs> I think so, so many more people are now doing it and people are seeing the value of it and like i've never there was one time where i had an issue with it at work but you know in the last kind of three years uh mostly it's been very 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 positive that is interesting i mean you're you're quite you're quite a pg guy as well i think in terms of the content that you put up it's not very explicit but it's it's not very risque it's not like i'm showing my six-pack abs like you guys do so (laughs) (laughs) well although saying that like you're you're very uh you're very transparent about, and I think the kind of content that you do, I suppose that like with any, any vloggers, and this is what kind of blew my mind a little bit, just seeing the, um, seeing how much interest people have in videos, like what's in my bag as a junior doctor, like that people are so voyeuristic and really like the stuff that's like, that would seem mundane, but it's kind of quite personal. And have, have you ever kind of struggled with reconciling, like putting your, putting your personal life just kind of, so upfront um yeah so this is something that my mum and grandma often kind of talk to me about like why are you so uh, why are you basically putting your whole life online and i think like i just like personally have a very a very high bar for what is too private to share and so something like what's in my bag or even something like how much money i earn in a given week like i don't think that falls in the category of too private to share if it was something like 
religion, then yeah, I don't talk about that for very specific reasons. If it's like my sex life, for example, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't talk about that <laughs> or like intimate details of relationships or whatever. Uh, but beyond that, I think most things are, you know, completely fair game. And I think if personally you've got that kind of um, view of it, then it, it, it kind of makes sense. Like people online appreciate authenticity and it's not like I'm trying to put anything on by oversharing. <laughs> it's just kind of what I do anyway. So yeah, I, I, I don't really feel a need to reconcile it as such. The, the making money video was um, really well done as well, I think. Cause it, cause yeah, exactly. As you said that people seem to be, they, it's almost like a taboo about talking about their income, even though everyone earns an income and you, it was very much framed as here's how you can do the same. And it wasn't a kind of flexing video of like, Hey, here's what I do. I'm better than you. It was, it was like, I'm being upfront about this and being transparent. Here are the, um, here are the different methods that you can, that you can make some money online with. And it's something I'd love to kind of to dig into a bit more with you at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Now I, so I spent ages trying to figure out how to get the, how to, how to get the tone of that video, right? Cause I've, I've been, it's, it's one of those videos that you know is going to get views when you title the video, how much money I earn in a week. And there's a few other YouTubers that have done it mostly in the personal finance space. And you get these guys, people like Graham Stephan who are making $5,000 a day from YouTube AdSense. And they've got other streams on top of that. And you're just like absolutely flabbergasted. Mm-hmm. Um, and those videos get millions of views. So for the last few months, I've been toying with the idea that, Hey, you know, I've now got these multiple streams of income. This is something I've been actively working towards for the last, like eight years of my life since reading the four hour work week, <laughs> like at this point, it would make sense to make a video about this. But I, I was umming and eyeing about it so much because of this fear of, Oh, I don't want to come across as if I'm a twat for kind of sharing these numbers publicly. Yeah, but, but like you, you can see your intention with it. And yeah, I, I don't know about the other guys that you mentioned. I think I saw a similar one by a guy called Stefan from project life mastery. I don't know if you've seen him. Oh, bald, I think I've, I've come across him, but I haven't seen that video. He's, he's a bald Canadian guy. Yeah. So he does something very similar. talks about his like, $7 million portfolio and all the different corporate bonds that he holds and so on. And yeah, like you can tell from, from his intention that it's not a flexy video. It's a, like, here's what I do. Here's how you can emulate this. Yeah. <clears throat> I think it's some, as we were discussing briefly at the beginning, people in careers that they perhaps got into for financial reasons originally, you know, you leave university and joy and do something that you think, Oh, well, if I go down this path, then, my projected salary in five, 10, 20 years time will be the following. And then you hear of someone who's making like more money than you are now passively doing something a bit niche and a bit strange. I think YouTube's becoming less niche and less strange, but Mm. it's still something that I think people don't really understand of this idea that you can have an income stream that's, that's passive or digital and doesn't require you to necessarily work somewhere at a certain time. It's all, it's something that I think is very fascinating, certainly for our generation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like the more traditional the career, the more weird this sort of stuff is. Mm-hmm. Like if you're in the Bay Area and working in a tech startup, like everyone knows <laughs> what passive income is. Yeah. But if you're a medic or like an accountant, like no one has heard of the phrase. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Definitely. That, that's very true. And it I think actually in those professional in those kind of traditional professional worlds, people have blinkers on all of the kind of stuff in, in that, that that that's a little bit off piece. So like someone was taking the piss out of me at work the other day because I was talking about how I have someone that does my ironing. They come to oh, the house nice. and I give, them a, I give them a bin bag of, of stuff and then they just give it back in, you know, um, sheets of plastic mm. and hangers. And they were like, what? That's so lazy. And it's like, what, what's your hourly rate as a pharmacist? Like, it, are you really worth 10 pounds an hour to iron your shirts one by one? Like it's absolutely, this shouldn't be done by you. And they were like, I bet you, do you not even cook your own meals? I was like, no, of course not. Or cleaning or any of this stuff. Like why, why would you, if, um, you, the opportunity cost of that time allows you to create something that's higher value. But I guess it's a concept that in a situation where you're being paid by the hour or you know, being, paid, being paid a flat salary, it doesn't make sense to work any faster or slower because the, yeah. you're in for those hours. No, absolutely. Uh, I think uh, this is something that I've, uh, I've, I've, I've been struggling to explain to friends for the last several years because it's a pretty standard trope amongst like tech people and entrepreneur type people that you should value your time at a certain hourly rate and anything you're doing that you don't enjoy that's outside of that rate, you should just outsource or delegate or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like 
you know, that idea really hasn't taken hold in in places like medicine, where, where people just think you're a lazy, a lazy twat for having a person, having a cleaner, or having a secretary, or whatever. Well, it's, it's it's funny in medicine as well. I think it's one of the only one of the few professions. Well, it's probably quite a few where if there's nothing coming in, so like as a doctor, if there's nobody unwell in the under the wards that you're covering, there's nothing to do. But we were sat in the um, in the doctor's mess the other day. And there was someone at the window taking photos of us, like, because there were a bunch of doctors sat there and it was almost, and they were like giving thumbs up as if like they're going to put a tweet about it, like lazy doctors sitting on mm. the sofa. And it's like, well, if no one's unwell currently, then yeah. what do you want and us to do? Go and like find work to do. So I think it's a, it, it's definitely a, a generational thing as well. So my, I have this back and forth with my dad all the time where I will just, if my car needs cleaning, I'll go to a car wash. And his view is you should wash it by hand because that's a demonstration of, you know, valuing something and putting work in. And even though, you know, you have the conversation of, well, I will actually die. Like if I, if I use that time differently, like I could create something else or, you know, something that might even generate income in the future. You just won't, won't even entertain the idea because it's, you know, hard work is a good thing and, and manual things, manual time. That's a, that's a positive thing. And you shouldn't seek to automate and outsource it. Yeah, I kind of ha- I occasionally have similar conversations with my mum. Although she tends not to use the defense of, "Well, this is a valuable thing to do." It's more of a, "But you're spending three pounds on on on, on this laundry <laughs> when, you, when you could just do it yourself." And I'm like, "Bro, come on!" <laughs> well, <laughs> my YouTube mum. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, have you seen my video where I talk about how much money I? <laughs> I suppose this comes down to the 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 way that the money is being made for you is that it is not directly related to the hours that you put in. And for anyone that's not seen the video, let me know if I've completely butchered this out, but it's, I think six forms of income. So YouTube revenue from ads, uh, Skillshare, um, premium, like premium minutes, like dollars per minute, six med. Uh, and then there were a couple of others as yeah, well. There's a few other affiliate partnerships, affiliate stuff and Amazon. Yeah. And so all of these are kind of more, have come about from the momentum of the whole ship moving rather than any individual unit of labor that you've put in. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I suppose with that comes the, um, the, the increase in exposure. And I suppose like, you know, you said you were kind of concerned about the tone that the income video was coming across. Have you, have you found that because there's like an amplification factor as you gain, as you gain exposure that, probably the the proportion of comments that you get that are kind of haters versus um positive comments starts to um starts to become starts to get to the point where you have to be a bit more kind of careful over the words that you choose and and that kind of thing um i thought i would but actually not not so much like people have the uh, there's this trope going around that you know the the youtube comments is like a you know cesspit and it's absolutely terrible and stuff <laughs> But like, you know, for the last three years, I've, I, I, I've had so few negative comments. Like every time I get one, I screenshot it and post it on my Instagram story just for fun. <laughs> but it's such a novelty. I only, I only get to do that like once or twice a month. And it's, it's really annoying because these are funny comments <laughs> that, that, you know, that, that, that people love to see. But it's just so unusual. And even with this money video, I think that there was maybe like one or two people being like, lol, mate, get a life. Why do you need to share your income? And there were like 20,000 people being like, oh my God, this is so inspiring. Like it's that level of, you know, overwhelmingly positive. Um, mm. So I think I think YouTube's that is unusual for YouTube. And, yeah, I'm not sure. Is it unusual for YouTube? Because they might get other people's pretty comments. Weird for comments. That. Oh, what, <laughs> but what, what sort of maybe we're just like to to be honest. It, it tends to be on the topics that are a bit weird and would kind. Of, so I've got a video about sleeping on the floor, like my experience of sleeping on the floor for four months, and right. it's attracted a lot of very strange people. But I think it's less to do with the channel and more to do with the topic of the video and the kind of people that are searching for that topic. Okay. Um, I imagine the income one, if someone's on that video, they're probably interested in increasing their income. So um, yeah, you're right. Like a certain type of person. Yeah, probably. Although I'm, I'm scrolling through the comments of that video now. They don't seem too bad. But I guess it's, I, I guess it's because YouTube is organizing them by like... Um, by the likes on them as opposed to by mm-hmm. latest comments. Whereas when we kind of browse the YouTube studio app and refresh it 80 times a day, we see the latest comments. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. But yeah, yeah we, we, we kind of do the same thing. If we get, we get like steroid accusations occasionally, which I find quite funny because I'm like a yeah. 75 kilo guy. Like if I'm on steroids, I'm doing it wrong. Yeah. Um, 
but like, yeah, we, we share it on Instagram because it is quite, um, it is quite fun. I'm, I'm glad that you, you take quite a kind of, um, lighthearted attitude to it as well. Have you found that you've been recognized much in person? Um, occasionally it, it kind of depends where I am. There was a, the, there was a bizarre day where like last, last year I was in, I was in Bulgaria for this medical students conference thing. And there's this random city in Bulgaria called Plovdiv. And I got recognized like four times on the streets of Plovdiv. Wow. <laughs> but it just so happens that they've got a medical school there that takes a lot of, uh, usually like a, a load of Asian medical students from the UK who didn't get into medicine in the UK. So it was like, you know, peak target audience for me. Right. <laughs> and so a lot of people in this, in this university would have recognized me from, from, from my videos and, that's but that was that was pretty bizarre, yeah. It, yeah, so if we, I think if we're ever in like a, a pool of people where it's a very high proportion of of potential viewers, so if we're at like a powerlifting competition or something, yeah, tend to get recognised a lot. Um, occasionally in hospital for me as well, but oh really? It's yeah, which I'm surprised by because our traffic is is pretty small in comparison. But um, so you've you've basically found ways to kind of monetize yourself across a number of different areas was it deliberate to spread it between things or is, was it was that kind of like a hedging strategy or is it just kind of how things have come about uh it was very much a hedging strategy because uh, i've been concerned for some time that the, the bulk of my revenue was coming from the youtube bucket and so something i think about every month is right how can i diversify away from youtube just in case and so that's where the skillshare stuff came about kind of online courses that's where i started going a little bit harder on the affiliate uh on the affiliate marketing side and now we're in the process of redesigning my personal website so that can become its own like hub, which would then lead into online courses and affiliate marketing and stuff away from YouTube. And now, like I said, as of yesterday, I decided I wanted to take Twitter seriously. So <laughs> yeah, here we are. So I think the, the, the commonality, Ali, between you and sort of someone that's probably listened to this podcast is there's a, a realization at some point that like the journey you've been on, someone who is earlier on in that journey that you can add value to them or you can give them something that, as you say, is either free that leads into a, a transaction, pay transaction, um, or sell them something that would help them sort of go through that journey faster. Was there something that, cause I think there, the, the standard journey sort of is people don't necessarily realize that, or they don't think they can like, monetize themselves to use a, that phrase. Mm. So was there something that specifically made you realize that or something that happened that made you realize there was an opportunity to start an online presence and start an online brand? Yeah. So th- I'd, I kind of had this in my mind since before starting the YouTube channel, because like th- the first objective was this content, content marketing for my business. So I was like, okay, cool. Well, it, this makes sense. It, it makes mm. sense for me to spend this money creating this free content because then I'm hoping that over time it'll kind of come back into the business as people, as people sign up for stuff. But then as a sort of about eight months into it, I turned on ads for my YouTube channel because you can switch on the monetization. And then I started making kind of like a few tens of dollars each month. And then I released a couple of videos that did big and kind of made a few hundreds of dollars each month that I was like, Oh, hang on, this is actually pretty legit. So then it just sort of accidentally happened over time when it comes to YouTube AdSense. Like the more you grow on YouTube, the more you happen to make without having to really think about it. And so when that got to a point where I was like, oh damn, okay, I'm now making, what is it? 50 pounds a day. So 1500 a month um, off of this YouTube thing. Okay. Why don't I think about how I can turn this into multiple streams? And I think uh, this has sort of been my attitude since I first read the four hour work week, which is right. Okay. I want to do medicine for fun. And I want to have multiple streams of passive income to sort of fund my economic engine, as it were. Um, and so the YouTube thing just tied so well into all of that stuff, especially as I started following uh, people like Gary Vaynerchuk and sort of finding out his strategies for monetization, which is mostly, you know, just produce a, an absolute ton of free content and then occasionally mm-hmm. you can monetize it. Mm-hmm. And so I've been following that playbook, which seems to have worked really well. Such a fascinating concept as well of um, when you talked about decoupling your need for your job. Uh, your your salary from your main job from the enjoyment from it and mm. being able to do medicine on your terms and and enjoy it and i think that's that's very much the way that that, that i that i want to go personally um and it's the reason that, that johnny and i quit our kind of corporate jobs as well is that thinking i'd rather be able to have the the freedom of the freedom of time freedom of location satisfaction and and money and you know the, there's a different 
jobs provide a different balance of those four variables. Um, you mentioned somebody who you spoke to at work that, so I, I like this question. You said you ask most people at work, like if you won the lottery, would you still come into work tomorrow? Yeah. And you said very, no one ever said yes, full time. Some people said part time and one person said, I would leave in the middle of the operation. Yeah, I feel I feel he was he was being a bit facetious about it, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the the uh, the message was pretty clear. Yeah, like it 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 makes a lot of sense, right? Like um, we all go into medicine or into a career thinking probably more than I'm I'm doing this to make money. We think things like, oh, well, this will this is going to be fulfilling, and I'll get the job satisfaction, and I'll be able to help people. But then it seems like very quickly the fact that it's a job that makes money overrides all of these other things and so there's a, a really good book called uh, your money or your life by vicky robbins which is all about this idea that in modern society we've sort of drunk the kool-aid and believed somehow that our jobs are worth more than just the fact that they pay us money mm-hmm. we tell ourselves the story that actually in my job i get all this fulfillment i get all this banter with the co-workers i get all this this that and the other and she makes a very convincing case that actually the only reason you're saying that is because your job is making you money. And if your job wasn't making you money, would you still want to go in? Mm, probably not, because you can find all these other things by volunteering at your local church or by doing all sorts of other things. There are other ways to get this sort of fulfillment that you're looking for outside of going to work for 40 to 60 hours a week. Is that an American book? I think it is, yeah. <clears throat> Just because um, I think practicing medicine in the States is much more representative of the number of units of, of input, time, mental energy, um, competence, and the amount that you're compensated for it. <clears throat> Whereas in the UK, I think it's disproportionately low for, you know, I know someone who's desperate to, to get out of F1 as soon as possible. He's been wanting to be an investment banker for, for years, kind of the opposite to what I did. But I totally understand his point that he, he says, for every unit of input that I put into medicine, I would be able to generate much more income in investment banking or if I applied that energy into a different sector. Absolutely. And in fact, you'd be able to generate much more impact in investment banking as well. Like you might've seen the stats that on average, a doctor in the course of their entire career will save about eight lives. Uh, And that's not taking into account the fact that if you or I weren't doctors, the next best person would have gotten into med school. So it's not taking the marginal utility of a doctor into account. Whereas it costs $2,000 $2,000 to save the life of a child if you donate to the Against Malaria Foundation. Like it is staggering the amount of impact you can have if you wow. donate money to effective charities relative to if you are, quote, just a doctor. And so, you know. <laughs> so the whole moral um, yeah. <laughs> drive doesn't, act, doesn't match up really. And it's, if, you, yeah, the, if you take a utilitarian view of it, it, it really doesn't. I suppose there is still a thing that, oh, you know, well, I'm the doctor who's made a difference to that specific patient. And of course, that's true. But I don't think we take into account, take enough account of the fact that if we weren't doctors, someone else would have had that conversation and probably would have done it just as well. Oh, right. So, so is that how I was going to ask? I, I don't understand the the eight people stats, but is that why? Is the idea that you're replaceable or you're? Oh no. So the eight people stat is 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 not even taking that into account. So how does that work then? How do you? Oh, there's some you... there's this like statistician guy who calculated it on the internet oh, <laughs> and, right, okay. and, and, and figured out that given that you're a doctor in a healthcare system where number of doctors is not a limiting factor, right? Like in the in the UK, right. whereas if you were in kind of some African village and there was one doctor per million people, then okay, having an extra doctor would be an enormous difference, right? But yeah. because medicine is so team based and everything is so based on guidelines and mm. there are set procedures you follow for everything. You as an individual doctor will quote save about eight lives in the, throughout the course of your right. entire career. So, so actually, by taking a step back, looking at the bottlenecks and the whole process, and saying if I want to optimize for number of lives saved, then I'd be I'd be best off going to Ethiopia or going to somewhere that there's a low, there's a very high ratio of patients to doctors. Yeah, or even I'd be better off going to investment banking and then donating a large chunk of my salary to the Against Malaria Foundation. Well, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. So there's a guy that we follow called Anton Creel, who is, like, I suppose, an investment banker. Um, yeah. But one of his kind of messages is, you know, people who... There's a, there's a, a popular line of thinking that, that making money is bad and working in certainly banks is bad and, and that, you know, that what these it, these companies in industry stand for is, it, is a bad capitalist and it... it this discriminates against lower incomes, et cetera. And his view is like, if you want to really just make a difference to anything, gain large amounts of wealth and use the wealth 
to change that thing. You know, use the cash that you generate from your income, your business to donate to people or change change the way things that things are rather than just sort of having a strong opinion with nothing to back it up. Because if, if each pound is a vote and yeah. you're able to vote massively then yeah there was um just on the on the point you said before ali the uh have you read free economics or the the you heard some of the concepts from the from the guy where he talks about they were trying to encourage people to give blood mm. and they introduced a small stipend of like three pounds or something to give blood and the number of donors dropped because it suddenly replaced the sense of moral um gain for three pounds and they were like, ah, oh, well it's not worth it. So they increased the stipend to like 70 pounds. And then they started to get people donating loads of blood, including giving fake IDs and giving <laughs> more blood than they were allowed to and donating yeah. other people's blood. And, and it, so it's just so interesting that by changing the, by substituting the, the moral benefit for, for a financial benefit, it disrupts the, the behavior and whether it's a higher or a low amount that also changes how people behave. <clears throat> Yeah, no, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I think a big part of why we do stuff is because of the story we tell ourselves about it, um, <laughs> whether it's doing medicine or donating blood or whatever. Yeah, the the four hour work week was it was pretty much the reason I quit my job as well. Oh, nice. Like a, it's, yeah, it's. I think it's a book that when you you speak to most people who are doing something on the internet, something that's a bit like you tell a traditional group of friends what you're doing, and they all go that's weird. Mm. You know, usually you can trace it back in some way to like Tim Ferriss or four hour work with that, that kind of world. <laughs> yeah, um, but I think the Tim talks about the, you know, the multiple currencies, this idea of having you know, income is a currency, but also where you work, when you work and all those sorts of things are also things that you need to consider. Mm. And that with combined with the stat of, I think is it $70,000 or something? The research that says that past that income level, you don't receive linear returns in happiness and satisfaction. Yeah. I think I can vividly remember this, just this like clouds parting realization of like, Oh my God, like I'm going to be 45 earning slightly more money, but with no more time, I won't be able to spend the money because I'll be even busier. And you just, I, I think more and more people these days are having the same realization. Yeah, I think so. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Tim Ferriss. For yeah. <laughs> Although it's, it's kind of annoying because every time I, I, I tell people that the four-hour work week changed my life and, and they try and read it, uh, actually, then it's a book that hasn't aged particularly well because it was written way back in 2006. And he even admits that his style of writing back then was very kind of in your face. It was very kind of a little bit salesman and that's not how he writes today. Yeah, But it, it seems like there just isn't uh, the equivalent book that is written in a more kind of 2020 style rather than a more 2006 kind of style. But still the, the thing I, I, I say to people, is, occasionally I've had people comment that, Oh, I tried reading and I just couldn't handle it. And I was like, all right, mate, fair enough, but that's entirely your loss. Like yeah. <laughs> Tim, Tim Ferriss is not losing out on the fact that you can read it. <laughs> you are losing out on the fact that you can't see past the writing style and see the content behind it. Cause I think amazing. He, so long ago. Yeah. Well, he, he, he keeps getting asked to rewrite it, but he doesn't want to in case he sort of damages the potentially magical, formula (laughs) secret sauce yeah but i think he he talks about selling information towards the end of the book as being one of the highest margin does he talk about putting on a cd or something i'm (laughs) sure he i'm sure it's like in the version i originally heard it's really very dated and it's you know doing research using google analytics he doesn't mention uh any real online marketing mentions social media or things like that and certainly the version that i listened to when i originally listened to it but yeah, the principles remain the same, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've actually got a, a video coming out in two weeks' time called How to Make Money Online, which is trying Ooh. to kind of break, break this down. <laughs> yeah. To kind of what are the different ways you can make money online? How do you get started with them? And what, what are the sort of different levels that you go through as you start off and progress on your journey of quote, making money online? Mm-hmm. So I, I was going to ask you about this because you said that you've given the four-hour work week to some people and didn't resonate with them. Um, would you recommend that somebody who is coming to you saying, I want to make money online goes through the same route that you have? Cause for example, we, with the PTs that we work with, there are some that are like, Oh, I hate face to camera stuff. I can't deal with it. I'm shit on camera and I get nervous. And, and it's like, in that case, don't do video. You should write or you should um, do podcasts or do something else. And so I suppose there's an element of matching your competence to the thing that you that that is also uh, profitable. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And I, I think video certainly isn't for everyone, especially because there's such a there's such a high bar now for what people accept on the internet as like a good quality video. Like back in the day, sure, 10 years ago, you could take out a webcam and just kind of talk. You, you really can't get away with that sort of stuff anymore unless you're like, unless there's something really, really, really special about you. And so the way that I, I think of it is that it's, so the, the journey to making money online is as, is as follows. So you, so you see so you've got level one, which is you're selling services so you're exchanging your time for money, essentially. Uh, this is a, assuming you've quit your day job. You're selling services as, as a sort of freelancer, trading your time for money. This is how I got started uh, doing freelance web design. And then, you know, over time, maybe you'll decouple yourself from the hourly rate and instead you'll charge $300 per project or 2500 for like a five-page website or, or something like that. But ultimately, you're still trading your time for money. Then level two is when you start selling products because those products are, you can create them once and then you sell them multiple times. And ideally, the thing you want to create is a digital product whereby the cost of distribution is zero, the cost of replication is zero. Um, Essentially, you've just kind of had to work once and then you've got this thing that just generates income over time. And that's all all fine. But the, the problem is that you then have to find an audience of people to buy your stuff. And you can go down the kind of paid acquisition route and start running Instagram ads and Facebook ads and all that stuff. Or what Gary Vaynerchuk would suggest is you build an audience over a long period of time by giving them loads and loads of free content. And so level three in this kind of make money online thing is garnering enough attention so that it supercharges anything you do when it comes to trying to sell goods or trying to sell services. And there's different ways of garnering attention, but broadly, it's a case of just putting out really good free content over a very long period of time (laughs) consistently. And you can do that through a blog. You can do that through LinkedIn, Medium, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. There's so many different platforms, a podcast even. There's so many different platforms for it. You don't have to put your face on the internet making YouTube videos, but you do have to add value in some way. And so after I made this video talking about how much money I earn, I started getting loads of messages from people being like, oh, but dude, I'm a medical student and I have no other interests. How do I make money online? Or, you know, dear sir, what's the easiest way to make money online? You know, it's usually Indians who write like that. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's really hard to give them a decent answer because the answer is that, well, what's the easiest way to add value? I mean, like just... F- Find out what is va- what other people will find valuable, and then you'll be able to monetize that. But if you approach it from a perspective of "I want something easy," I mean, it's 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 never going to work because you you know ultimately money is just an exchange of value. So you have to provide value in order to make money. And you guys are doing that through your fitness stuff. I'm hopefully doing that through kind of <laughs> selling this myth about me being super productive and <laughs> sharing tips about <laughs> that. So yeah, I think that that particular idea is probably the most misunderstood part of, of making money online. That somehow because you're using the internet instead of having offline conversations or interactions with people that that you know the the laws of supply and demand disappear and that people will just give you you know if you stood in the street and said will anyone please give me five pounds as they walk past you very very you might get the odd person but very very few people are gonna engage with that versus as you say it's it's figuring out like why would someone pay for something um why would someone bother transacting with you for any particular reason why would someone even even buy your service and we have that all the time so ali has just run away (laughs) he's had enough (laughs) i obviously said something that made him think you know what that's a great idea i need to i need to go do that i need to go now right this moment I'm sorry, that was uh, someone at the door. That's okay, that's okay. <laughs> I think they're going to ring the actual doorbell in just a second as well. We were just saying, um, we, we thought that the, the idea that Johnny C did there was so good that you were like, right, I'd like to do that. <laughs> I've got to write this down. <laughs> <laughs> should we wait and see if they actually ring the door? Uh, they should do in the next kind of 30 seconds. Okay. They struggle to find specifically which floor of the building this is on. Amazon Delivery. It didn't look like Amazon. It looked like Maybe someone sent a pizza to you or something. Maybe they did. Would you trust a pizza sent to you from a subscriber? No, 100%. Yeah. You would? <laughs> would. Yeah, of course. Wow. Why not? Why would you're, you? You're a trusting guy. Like, I saw your, your offer of give, buying a coffee for anyone that is around the area. I don't know whether you can still um, accommodate that or not. Yeah, it's a bit annoying in lockdown. But I've, I've, I've met so many people through that. Oh, be right back. got to go buy someone a coffee <laughs> someone's at the door waiting for their coffee excuse me excuse i me. saw that you promised this promised online 
Because <laughs> I, because I saw that he used to promise that online and say, I'd, I'll, "If you follow me and you're in the area, I'll buy you a coffee." But like, I mean, first of all, I can't imagine even. <laughs> but but with six hundred. Oh right. Um, I we we're just saying like with with six hundred thousand subscribers to continue to try and um, to try and honor the the coffee offer. I don't know how you're not just pounded. But like the coffee offer is like so for for, for people who, who aren't familiar, I have, I have on my website a thing saying that if you're if you're around Cambridge, then hit me up, and if I'm free. Uh, I'll, I'll buy you a coffee and we can hang out. And like of those 600,000 people, how many of them are re- realistically going to come all the way to Cambridge to kind of take me up on this coffee offer? And the ones that do are going to be interesting in some way. So, <laughs> Well, they're, well, they're fortu- fortuitously placed in Cambridge, but I imagine your your mum's main concern about that is the that the coffee costs £3.50. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that. I, th- uh, I think there is a concern that trumps that, which is occasionally I invite people like just to hang out at my place if we have like a really good conversation or if I can't be asked to leave the house, I'm just like, right, here's my address. Just come and just come oh, over. Wow. Uh, and my mum was like, what the hell? You're inviting strangers into your house. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. What, what if they're a sex pest? Well, exactly. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> so far they haven't been. Uh, Fair enough. But, yeah. Well, uh, Ali, the, the thing that I've kind of learned from speaking to you so far is that a lot of, cause I, I didn't know from seeing the, where you're at now, how much of it was just, stumbling into these situations and or and how much of it was a calculated decision and it seems like it was a lot more deliberate than i'd initially given you credit for um with all of the different sources of income and also where where you've got to with the youtube particularly your production quality is incredible like it's some of the best production quality i've seen and i i I realize how labor intensive that is to to make a video like that is there with, with content, how much of it do you feel is gaming the YouTube algorithm, having kind of search engine optimized keywords and stuff? How much of it is just momentum? How much is consistency of putting content out there? And how much is production quality? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I'm actually working through a, an eight-week coaching program at the moment called Video Labs. Uh, it's this like $2,000 like live online type thing where this uh, kind of YouTube growth consultancy called Video Creators they take you through kind of all the different ways of growing a YouTube channel. And incidentally, they follow the playbook of giving valuable advice. So I've been listening to their podcast for two years where they, every week they just deliver tons and tons of value in terms of provide like, you know, tips for how to grow your YouTube channel. And at the end, occasionally they'll be like, Hey guys, you know, uh, sign up for video labs is just opening up. Uh, you know, if you want a discount code, here it is. And this time I was like, okay, cool. I've, I've gotten enough value out of these guys. I'm sure this is going to be fully worth it. So I'm just going to sign up now. And so they follow that playbook of just providing free content and then leading people into a higher paying funnel. Anyway, uh, the whole thing about YouTube these days is that it's not about gaming the algorithm and it's not about search engine optimization. That sort of stuff worked on YouTube back in like 2012. But then around about 2015, 16, the algorithm changed to uh, care more about things like what is the video that is keeping people on the platform for longer? Like, how are you maximizing video watch time, but also overall session watch time? Because YouTube ultimately just wants to be able to serve more ads to people. And that was all fine. Uh, but now in 2019, 2020, they've got that. But on top of that, they've got various viewer signals. So a certain representative proportion of your viewers will find themselves being asked these little, little surveys, like how satisfied did, did this video make you feel? And they're using those quite strongly supposedly this is kind of what the theory is obviously it's an actual black box that no one fully understands how it works but the whole point that these guys are making throughout this video lab stuff and they've got a good course called 30 days to a better youtube channel which is much cheaper and you know you can can work through in your own pace the whole point is that it's all about creating videos that people can't stop watching it's not about the meta tags it's not about the 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 uh, you know, the SEO and, you know, trying to put as many keywords as you possibly can into the title and description, which used to work in 2012. It's instead about creating a connection with a viewer that makes them keep on coming back. And therefore, I... because the objective of YouTube algorithm now is to surface the right video to the right person at the right time and ideally make them leave the platform feeling good about themselves. It's that... just, it's a, it's a real, it's a quality game essentially when it comes to, when it comes to making the videos. So I'm, I'm so glad they're moving in that direction. Cause yeah, you, you're right. Like 2012 <clears throat> did seem like it was kind of a dark age of YouTube where 
the top videos that would always be, it's always like crazy ex-girlfriend prank gone sexual or you yeah. know, stuff that capital letters and really like mad stuff that was clearly just to try and trigger all of the outrage buttons on, mm. on people. So it sounds like now they've sophisticated, the algorithms become sophisticated enough to really optimize for authentic quality and total watch time, which I guess you can't really hack. Yeah, there's no hack around it. You've just got to <laughs> make lots of videos and hopefully make videos that people will want to watch. So there's different ways of doing that. You know, the, the thing we're working through at the moment, we're in like week six of the program and it's all about um, trying to tell a compelling story in the narrative of your videos. So it's all very well doing a, here's a five productivity tips video and that's fine. But if you can do it in a way that tells a story that really connects with the viewer, then you could potentially go a lot bigger. So... In terms, what what do you attribute your growth to over the last few years? I think uh, consistency and patience, and providing, and basically just teaching, uh, teaching the stuff that I was already doing. So Gary Vaynerchuk has a nice phrase called "document, don't create." Like it's really hard to create content, but it's very easy to document the stuff that you're doing anyway. And you know, when it comes to reading books i've now started a series where i i just talk about my favorite books and key highlights from that when it comes to my favorite apps and my desk setup and all this stuff like this this is all just documentation there are so few pieces of content that i actually create and when it comes to things like you know the question i get most often is how do you manage your time as a doctor and youtuber all right cool i'll make a video about that so that that, that was actually like, the video i just recorded this morning it was oh, my, no my desk setup and how i manage my time just because it was a common question that we get yeah absolutely it's that's how you do it and so yeah, I think just patience, consistency. I think one thing that I knew early on is that I wanted to win on the production value point of view because I, because at the time when I first got started, there were a few other kind of university YouTubers who had very effusive personalities um, and were sort of very entertaining on camera. And I knew that that wasn't me. Um, and there was a guy I discovered called Simon Clark, who's a, he, did, he did his uh, physics degree from Oxford and then was doing a PhD at Exeter and he was doing vlogs about life as a university student. And he's this like sort of posh white guy. He sounds kind of like me. He w- was, you know, s- singing tenor in like the choir and was just kind of going about his day. Be like, okay, hi guys. Um, I'm just going to talk to you about all the things I'm doing in my PhD. Now, this is how I'm making this algorithm to calculate atmospheric pressure. And it was a very kind of like, oh, this is, this is more my kind of guy. And I was like, okay, I want to be that kind of guy. But I want to have, you know, Peter McKinnon, MKBHD, Jonathan Morrison, levels of production value. So I can be kind of uh, essentially the the phrase in my head was I, w- I want to be the Peter McKinnon of studying or of productivity. So so the production value what is is that kind of to reduce the the friction of watching the video? Is it to make it more kind of smooth smooth watching? Because because even watching your videos it's it's distinctly a very smooth experience. Like you've got the the music in the background and the floating graphics and mm. it's all very HD blurred background. Kind yeah. of quite, you know, you feel yeah. like you're being massaged into watching the video. <laughs> yeah. The blurred background is the most important thing. <laughs> you've, you've got to have a blurred background. I think I realized that there were some channels whose videos I watched, even if I didn't care about the content, just because they were so crispy. I was like, it's just, this video is a pleasure to watch. I don't really care what you're talking about. It's just <laughs> an absolute pleasure to watch compared to, you know, you know, even a, even like, you know, this, this webcam I'm using right now is pretty good quality. It's like an HD webcam that streamers would use, but it's just not the same as having a 3,000 pound camera with a 2,000 pound lens <laughs> with that nice blurred background. It's just, it's just not the same experience. And so I realized very early on is that it's, I think, I think it will be worth in the long term investing in production value because the nice thing about production value, right, is that once you, once you get it down, it becomes a repeatable process. Like it's no more harder for me to make a pretty looking video than it is for someone starting out on YouTube making a not very pretty looking video. All the, the only difference is I've been doing it for a very long time and I have an expensive camera and expensive lens that basically does it for me. And I know now enough about lighting and editing and stuff to be able to figure out what looks pretty. Um, but that's like a one-off expense. It's either a one-off expense of money where you buy this fancy camera or it's a one-off expense of time where you take the time to watch 18 YouTube tutorials about lighting and figure out, okay, cool. I want this light. I want it to be at this 45 degree angle. This is kind of what works for me. And then at that point, any video you sit down and do, it just it's just automatically better because you've thought about the production value from day one. And the way I think about it now is I'm kind of, I, I, I think of it as building a moat almost. And this is something that is sort of like startup terminology. Like if, 
if you're a startup or, or, or if you're a company and like, what's, what's the moat that you're building around your, your brand and your products such that other people would find it harder to compete. And so while I'm all for encouraging other people to become YouTubers and stuff, I always want to be like the gold standard YouTuber in my kind of niche of medicine, productivity, that's that sort of stuff. And I will do whatever the hell it takes to sort of <laughs> retain that position and to, you know, boost my production value. I'm, I'm even considering buying a $10,000 cinema camera just <laughs> to get that slight increase in production value because I know that I'm, I'm in the position now where I can afford to buy this stuff and very few newcomers to this area can feasibly afford to put that kind of expense to it. So this is a relatively easy way for me to stay on top of the game. And alongside, you know, doing things like figuring out how to craft my videos into better stories and better content and, and, and all that stuff. But the production value is a really important part of it, I feel. And so the advice that I give to friends of mine who are trying to grow on YouTube is if you've got a spare few thousand pounds to, to spend, don't go on holiday with that. Instead, buy a really fancy camera and lens because that will make you more money in the long term. I can almost guarantee it. Wow. Okay. And and you're saying once you've got that infrastructure up in place, it's kind of one and done. And then you don't have to, um, you know, the editing. So, because I'd imagine if using a fancy camera and editing and all that stuff, surely processing the, the videos and transferring the files and all that stuff does take slightly longer. Mm, yeah, but like... Uh... It, it, it's not it significant. Does. It's not significant. It's like, uh, so these days I have an editor and so I upload files to him via Google Drive and where, and I always upload them overnight. So whether it takes one hour to upload or eight hours to upload, it's pretty irrelevant for all of us. Uh, okay. So, yeah. Very cool. So, so it sounds like... Very, ex- very expensive conversation for us, Ali, so thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's quite all right. Make sure you use my Amazon affiliate links. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it sounds like from what you've said then, it's if you have an expertise um, to offer then you go through the levels of offering time for money, doing freelancing, and then scaling that and offering it as an information product and so on. If you don't have some form of expertise or coaching service or or something to offer, then it's about picking the content medium that suits you best and selling other people's stuff, so affiliate marketing. Yes, although I would say that if you don't have an expertise, then then you kind of have to find a way to provide value, right? Um, it's it's quite hard these days to just set up a random review website where you've got, just got affiliate links like Wirecutter that's making you loads of money because there's so many people doing that. They've done, so, Wirecutter have done it so well yeah, as well. Uh, Wirecutter, you know, I was searching yesterday, you know, best towel Wirecutter and I was like, <laughs> oh, they've done a review on like 18 best towels and this is the one you should buy. I was like, all right, I'm sold. <laughs> I will happily use your Amazon affiliate link. Um, but, uh, for, uh, this is something I'm going to address in my video as well. Like, what do you do if you don't have an expertise? And I think, honestly, anyone can just learn the expertise. Like, one of the guys who's on my team, his, his, his name is Angus, uh, he has never edited a video in his life. But, like, three, four weeks ago, he went through my Skillshare class on how to edit videos in Final Cut. This is, like, kind of three and a half hour long class. He signed up for free because you get a free trial and just watched it. And then he edited a video for my YouTube channel and all the comments on that video were like, oh my god, this is incredible editing. You've really upped your editing game. And this wow. is a dude who's never edited video in his life, who has now edited a video that's on like 300,000 views that people were like, this is incredible. And I started getting emails from people being like, I want Angus to edit videos for my YouTube channel. And he's never, awesome. it's like literally two days, <laughs> the dude watched my class and now he's a video editor. Zero to hero. Yeah, exactly. So if, if Angus wanted to, it would be very easy for him to, to, to make a how to edit videos for complete beginners, a course for Final Cut. That would be so easy to do because he, he is a complete beginner who now has that beginner's mindset, who can now therefore empathize far more with the needs of the true beginner than I can because I've been doing it for three years at this point. And so like almost anything you can learn on the internet and then you can teach other beginners who are learning that thing on the internet. So I don't think it's an excuse to say, or a reason to not do this thing, to say that, well, I don't have any, any skills that people are worth willing to pay for because you can just learn and then teach. 100%. And yeah, we, we often get people who message us saying, I'm a, I want to be an online coach or I want to be a, a online personal trainer, but I'm worried that I can't get results for my clients. And we're like, well, don't worry about the marketing for now. Like be a, learn to, you know, get good at your craft first and then market it. Otherwise you can't polish a turd. Like you have to be able to achieve the result for your clients first before you even worry about. Yeah. And, and often in, in the case of your mate, like that was all that he needed was to get good at his, his craft. And then, you know, even just going from, in a very short period, he was able to then get the uh, the results to speak for himself and to do the marketing for him. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. 
Johnny, any more questions? I'm, no, I'm just... Okay, so, so, so I've got some questions for you guys. Um, okay. Right, so basically, how, how do I... How do I get more hench? <laughs> is, is, is so how do I get muscles? <laughs> yeah. How do, how do I get muscles with preferably without getting a fat belly? At the moment, I basically live off takeaways. Uh, I try and be healthy with the takeaways. Like I get a grilled chicken wrap from like roosters or something. And I try not to get a fizzy drink with it. But I really know abs- like next to nothing about health, uh, about fitness or nutrition. And like, where do, where do I start as a, as a beginner to this? So we'll, we'll send you some stuff. Okay. I think that's probably the, the best way to start. <laughs> Um, otherwise this is going to be then an hour long conversation about fitness and nutrition. Should we give him the, uh, the, the, the cliff notes, the Pareto 20%. Yeah. Sure. Oh, nice. Yeah. Cool. What, what are you currently doing, Ali? Like, apart from, so apart from the grilled chicken wraps and the diet side, what's your, um, what's your training looking like? Uh, I have a pull-up bar. I can bust out sort of between eight and 10 pull-ups at a time. And I kind of try, try and do that every day. It ends up being once a week. I've got some resistance bands, which I've kind of hung from the top of the pull-up bar to do those like tricep extension-y thingy-majiggies. And occasionally I do some push-ups and I have like one of those ab wheel things that I can, I'm still on like on my knees and I can barely get to full extension on it. Do you know how much you eat on a daily basis? Do you know what your calorie intake or macronutrient intake is? No, I tracked no. this for like a week with my fitness power and then okay. I kind of stopped. Is is that something that's worth doing? I think so. The way we kind of view this stuff is yeah. find out where base camp is and then make changes from there. So, because it might be that I think people view meals or foods in isolation. It's more about the context of that. So, the grilled chicken wrap is, is great, but only if it's contributing towards a bigger picture that makes sense for your goal. So, I would I would definitely say for someone who's beginning, tracking that stuff and gaining an awareness of like, okay, that's two and a half thousand calories, 150 grams of protein. That's what that's like. How do I then make that habitual and consistent? And then I can look to remove my fitness pile from the equation and you can sort of manipulate and see what your body weight's doing. So we would typically say, track your calorie intake, track your scale weight and establish an average of both of those things. And then observe how those two change over time. Okay. And like, I, I guess I shouldn't care too much that, well, you know, if I'm, if I'm getting dinner at work, then how do I really know how much rice I'm getting and how much chicken curry I'm getting? Uh, I think best, best estimate. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, that stuff is difficult to do. And it's never, the trouble is like, as I'm sure, you know, metabolic rates, a moving target, calorie information on the back of a packet is not always accurate. It's averages. There's, there's so many errors. So it's just kind of get doing your, doing the best you possibly can. I guess like um, some, some sort of measurement is better than no sort of measurement. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, but yeah, like I think one of the first conversations we have with people is, do you know what those things are? And if you do, and you've been tracking them, then it's often a case of changing like one or two things to get things to move in the right direction. But if you don't know that, it may be that you're very close to making progress or a long way away from making progress. And it's kind of establishing how big that gap is. Okay. But like, so I've, I, I've been maintaining sort of an average weight of sort of about 70 to 72 kilograms for the last like, I don't know, eight years of my life. Mm-hmm. And so surely it is the case that if i just if i just work out more i will just become more muscular without being fat or is is that so, not how it works do I, well, do I also have to then pile on the food okay so so i think this is advice that i would only give to you because it's a very it's a very <laughs> tim ferris solution to this um which is just kind of just to to pay and outsource it but um if you have some digital scales like the fitbit ones or the wi-fi uh, Wythings scales that just you you weigh yourself every morning naked post-toilet pre-breakfast okay. at the same time yeah and then that syncs with your my fitness pal and creates a, a, a plot over the okay. over the weeks you'll then have like an average weekly weight change it sounds like your weight's been tr- ranging within a very tight range for the last few years so you you're you're probably um habituated to eating maintenance calories training uh, as you know calories tell your weight which direction it's going to go and training tells your body what to do with that weight and so obviously this advice might change in the next few weeks because you've got the kind of quarantine set up at the minute but ultimately you you do want to be doing some kind of barbell progressive overloaded program um otherwise it's it's kind of a it's kind of a waste of time i think that there is a lot of progress you can make with a pull-up bar and with some parallettes and the the resistance bands but it's certainly going to hit a point where you're 
you're just doing endless reps and yeah to be able to kind of to increase the the load that you're doing yeah you could maybe do like weighted pull-ups but then it could potentially get you in trouble with your landlord and if <laughs> if you pull down the door frame yeah. and so on um but yeah so <clears throat> so that from i think if you're tracking the lag variables of your weekly average body weight change then at least you've got an indicator of if things start to trend up or down and i i don't know if you found this like i definitely found this over the start of f1 <clears throat> is that people's weight seems to trend um distinctly in one of two ways when they start f1 so either people's coping strategy is they eat more food when they're stressed or like me i lost about five kilos because you come home from an on-call shift and you're like i'm too tired i can't be bothered to eat i'm just going to go to bed mm. and so at least you've then got quite an early alarm bell if something's something's going wrong with that so with with that once you've got that in place i think um and you if you enjoy takeaways and you're happy to kind of outsource the, the meal prep side of things any of these meal prep companies in the UK are fantastic. It's like four or five pounds a meal. And they're usually quite curated for being high protein, relatively moderate carb and fat. And then it's, you know, you just stick, bung them all in your freezer and you don't have to worry oh, about it. Dream. Okay, cool. Right. So I need to get one of these scales. Uh, which one do you recommend? I'm going to buy Amazon right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Withings, I think is now Nokia. Um, it's a Wi-Fi scale. They have a range. I think the top one does some kind of hydrostatic analysis that we don't tend to recommend. The the middle one, I think, is we can send you an actual link if you want. So there's a sixty quid, a ninety quid, and a hundred and thirty quid one. So it's the have 90. a look at the Fitbit one as well, just because if you prefer, I and mean, they're probably very similar features, but one the Fitbit yeah, one looks a bit prettier, I think. Oh, does it? Okay. The Fitbit one okay. syncs with Fitbit, syncs with the Fitbit app. That would be. Ah. Okay. Yeah. I don't have a Fitbit app. I use Apple Apple Watch stuff. Okay. Withings Nokia syncs with HealthCat have the health app on. Oh, okay. So does Fitbit. <laughs> cool. But yeah, uh, so I think see see your nutrition as a um, if the goal is muscle gain, yeah. then you, you, it's flicking a switch. So like, am I facilitating weight gain with my nutrition? Because if if you're just endlessly trying to progress in the gym, yeah, your nutrition is at maintenance or slight deficit. Okay. You'll just reach this point where you, you can't. So nutrition needs to be enough to facilitate the progression of the muscle gain. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then the training is, as you said, the training is what stimulates the, the direction ah. that you're gaining muscle rather than body, body fat. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Cause like I'd, uh, I'd made, I'd made a commitment to sort of take this stuff seriously just before lockdown. So I signed up to like a personal oh, trainer damn. and like and stuff. <laughs> And then like a week later, suddenly everything's closed. I'm like, oh damn. Okay. Well, I just want to not, I just want to kind of maintain some level of. Has the personal trainer moved the support online? Sorry? Has the personal trainer moved the support online for you? Uh, I I haven't messaged him about it. Uh, So So the personal trainer uh, needs to get in touch about the the personal training. And it sounds like you need an online personal trainer. It sounds that, like I it, mean yeah. that, that is something that we that we offer as well, Ali. Oh, saying. really? So, no way. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I I think that that would be the best the, the best approach. And then um, once you've once you've got those in place, I would pick I would pick a goal, so a direction of your weight. I, you can recomp, and you, so you can stay the same weight and kind of recomposition. But I think it's much more of a bollocon than it is to just lose weight first and then um, regain. Reason being that once you have a defined goal and you know that you're aiming to to lose X amount of kilograms, all of the resources can then be directed towards that. So then you can be like, right, my goal now is to lose five kilos and retain muscle. You'll probably gain a little bit of muscle or gain a bit of strength if you're starting a new program that you're not used to. Mm. And then at that point, you've got that that demon out of the way, the, the devil on your shoulder that's like, oh, you could always be a bit leaner, Ali. Like, and then yeah. once that's gone, then you can be like, right, all guns blazing going to start on slow <laughs> muscle muscle gain. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so lose, wait, was that lose weight first and then gain muscle? Or was that bulk and then cut? Um, so I would cut first um, okay. just because most people, unless you like absolutely bone shredded right now. Yeah. I think most people. Yeah, no, I've got, would, I've got a fair bit of belly fat. Uh, okay. Like I think most people could do with, with um, cutting first, just, Partly the psychological thing, because if you if you're gaining muscle but you still feel like you're not happy with your body fat, yeah, it's, it's always going to hold you back. Fat. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. So if I if I want to cut, like how, how? So 
how 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 much do I want to cut? What do you weigh right now? Uh, like seventy two. So I'd probably start with we t- we tend to say sort of take five to ten percent body weight. So maybe say aim to lose five percent of your body weight. Oh wow! Okay. Um, cool. While also putting in place a progressive training plan, um, increasing your protein intake, you'll probably find if you start following something that is um, very structured and focused around progressive overload and you're managing your training workload and things like that, you'll probably look like you're, you're gaining muscle and losing fat at the same time, which is kind yeah, of... Yeah, people will be like, oh, you look, you're looking massive. You'll be like... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah. Um, but the, the, the diagnostic question we normally ask is, you know, would you be happy gaining body fat over the next six months? Because that, that tends to be what has to happen to gain to gain muscle, like a, a, you know, meaningful amounts of muscle. There tends to be some body fat that comes with it, and most people say no. I wouldn't. Yeah, be I would say that. no to that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that then leads to all right. Well, the choice is off is, is taken out of your hands, and the, the answer is to cut first and then transition into a like a lean gain phase where body fat's no longer a psychological limitation. Oh, interesting. That's the first time I've heard it done in that kind of order. Usually, that people order. are like, "Oh, just bulk all the way and then just cut." Yeah, it ju- you're just creating more work for yourself, basically. Because right. you know, at that point, most people lose, especially recently gained muscle, lose some muscle mass in a cutting phase. So you've oh, gone okay. through this period of gaining this new muscle, and then you're plunging yourself into a calorie deficit to lose weight again. Um, so Plus, your your nutrient partitioning and your your estrogen will be all over the place. Like if you're gaining from a place of kind of mm-hmm. 15, 20% body fat plus. So, um, yeah, I think you kind of, you can lay the groundwork hormonally and psychologically by getting shredded first and then stepping it up from there. Oh, sick. All right. How do I sign up for online PT with you guys? <laughs> oh, sweet. We'll, we'll send you a link. <laughs> nice. <laughs> okay. This sounds good. I've, I've, I've ordered the scale is arriving tomorrow. Oh my God. You, um, you don't mess around, do you? No, mate, it's, it's got, it's got to be done. But I feel like I, I, I have these like bursts of motivation where it's like, you know, I, I looked up the Reddit body weight progressive overload thingy. And I was like, Oh, I'm going to do it. And I did it twice. And now the spreadsheet oh. is just kind of being sitting there. Yeah. Gathering dust. I feel like I need some accountability. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than yeah. just me sitting on my own and at, at home being like, well, I could just make another video and objectively that'll <laughs> probably make more money then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Good stuff. Ali, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for uh, coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I apologize for oversleeping and being late. Oh, not uh, at all. Despite you guys wanting to talk about productivity and stuff. So. <laughs> no, no, it's, yeah, it's been very, very interesting. Very cool. Interesting. Yeah. And thank you for the advice. And yeah, um, send me a link and I'd, I'd love to do some online PTing with you guys. Awesome. Brilliant. Want to learn more about the systems we use to run, build, and scale propanefitness.com? Head over to propanefitness.com forward slash business podcast and you can get your hands on our free training that covers the seven steps that we take with every client that we help build their own online business and also the seven steps that we use to successfully build Propane Fitness. We walk through the sales systems, the delivery systems, follow-up, remarketing, how to basically build your program so that it delivers coaching to your clients without you being there 24-7. We really do cover the full thing, right? And if you want to continue even further and potentially work with us, there's a chance to book in a call to have an informal chat with Yusuf or I to just basically see if any of our programs would be a fit to help you get from where you are to where you want to get to. So go to propinfitness.com forward slash business podcast today and get access to that. If you'd like to learn just more about Yusuf and I, more about us, what we do, follow us on the various channels. The best place to go is our YouTube channel. We have a load of stuff from fitness content, productivity content, why Yusuf slept on the floor for several months, why he's been having cold showers. There's always stuff on there that's entertaining and hopefully informative. So just go to YouTube, search for Propane Fitness, and you can find out a bit more about us there as well. Speak to you on the next episode.